I was driving through town this week, and I passed a sign in someone's yard. It was actually here on Colonial Road. Um, it was a list of the Ten Commandments. I hadn't seen someone put these in their yard using a portable sign before, but I think most of us have seen the giant plaque that's over on Main Street, not far from here, that was put up a few years ago, or the monuments, more than a plaque. It's an impressive display. Now, I can't help but wonder the purpose of putting these signs in your yard along the road. Why do people put these signs up? My assumption is that these people believe the Ten Commandments are the, ba- are the basic foundation of a good and prosperous society. They think that if these Ten Commands are followed, then undoubtedly our nation will experience blessings. Our town will experience blessings. Maybe I'm just making unwarranted assumptions. But as I look and think back over the last 25 years of my own life, I think it's a fair assumption. And you're probably wondering why I'm even bringing this up at all. Well, I've got a petition here for each of us to sign to get the Ten Commandments back in our schools. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. My intention in bringing this up is to split hairs that need to be split. I had a friend a few weeks ago put it this way. Many Christians in America view America in one of two ways. Either they think America is Babylon or they think America is Zion. Either they think America is a pagan nation just like all other nations of the world, or they think America is some sort of promised nation, spiritual partners with Israel, if you would. I'm sure this is not a new phenomenon. In many nations, for hundreds of years, Christians have sought to bring the gospel to bear where they live. We could spend time studying all of that, but I've only got 25 or 30 minutes left, and we still have to get into our text in Romans 5. So I'm just going to talk about where it seems we are right now. How do Christians in America view America as it relates to the kingdom of God. Signs and monuments of the Ten Commandments, like what we see on Main Street, tell me that there are those who view America as Zion, as a sort of new Israel, a blessed and promised nation, blessed by God. And no doubt, we as a nation have been blessed by God. But have we been blessed by God because of our obedience to his law? Have we been blessed by God because of our obedience to his law? Those who answer that question with yes will fight tooth and nail to restore to the public square the role of the law. The law brings blessing. Obedience to the law brings prosperity. What we want is a nation blessed by God. So we we must do what we can to bring people to a knowledge of the law and encourage obedience to the law. Perhaps I'm misstating the intentions of those who advocate for the public display and remembrance of the Ten Commandments. I don't think I am. And I think it's of paramount significance that we discern what our actions as Christians are saying. Because this is what I understand when I see a plaque of the Ten Commandments. Do this and you will live. Do these things, and God will bless you. Obey these things, and your life will be better. Now, there is a part of that that I cannot object to. I do think your life will be better if you do not murder somebody. I do think your life will be better if you do not commit adultery. I do think your life will be better if you do not perjure yourself. 
But here's where we step into the message of Romans that we've looked at so far and also deep into our text in Romans 5 today. True spiritual life is not found in the Ten Commandments. True spiritual awakening does not start with obedience to God's law. What is missing from the Ten Commandments is what do you do when you break the Ten Commandments? What happens when you screw up? Just white-knuckle your way into not messing up again? Put boundaries around yourself so that you're not tempted in the same way to disobey God's law again? Try harder next time? Trust yourself to obey as much as possible? I grew up in church. I grew up understanding right from wrong. I grew up being taught to follow God's law. And there's nothing wrong with following God's law. There's nothing wrong with posting scripture in your front yard. But what is the message that you are sending to those who drive by it? What is the message that we are communicating to our neighbors? The message that I hear when I see the Ten Commandments on some dude's property is do this and live. Obey these and God will love you. Obey these and our society would be better because you would be better. But that's not how the gospel works. That's not how Jesus works. That's not how faith works. The message that I don't hear is trust in Jesus because you can't keep all of these. The message that I don't hear is that these laws are specific proof that you fall short of the glory of God in numerous specific ways. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Our nation would be better off if nobody lied. Our nation would be better off if there were no murders. But our nation and our town will still be as spiritually lost as a ball in high grass without the life that flows from Jesus to us by God's free gift of grace through faith in Jesus. So if I'm going to shout from the rooftops or shout from a sign in my yard, what I'm going to shout is what Paul shouts in Romans 5. What we looked at last week, let us exult in our God who shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We do not receive reconciliation through adherence to the law. We do not receive God's love through our obedience. So whether it's meant to be taken that way or not, what that sign gives people is rules to follow, but no hope when the rules are broken. What that monument gives people is a standard that they can't live up to, which leaves us with a lack of hope about what happens next. The law is true, but the law by itself offers no hope. It offers no peace. It offers no reconciliation. Almost every month, I encourage us all to read the same book, a book of the month. We provide everyone a copy that wants one, hand them out, ask them to read it, and then buy dinner at the end of the month so we can discuss it over food. Our book this month is The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, I mentioned earlier. If you haven't read it, you should. If you're in the middle of reading it, keep reading it. If you don't have a copy, get one. There's at least one more up here. And here's why I bring this up. What I'm touching on so far today is on the same wavelength as what Keller is writing about in that book. 
Now, I don't mean the same wavelength of skill. I just mean a common theme. Read Keller's book so that you might better understand or understand where your heart stands before God. There are a countless number of us who are familiar with church, who've grown up in church, who have believed the lie that what God wants from us is our obedience to his law. What God wants is good moral people. The gospel can be staring us right in the face, and yet all we hear is do this so that God is pleased. Live this way so that God is honored. But all the while, our hearts are far from him. All the while, we are the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. We are the rich young ruler who has kept all of these commands since our youth. We are the Pharisee who strictly observes God's commandments and looks down on those who have not. And our hell will burn just as white hot as all other pagans who do not lay down their own righteousness for the free gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Keller argues early on in the book that the tougher situation of the two brothers in the story of the prodigal son is the older brother's situation. He has blinded himself to the grace that the father is freely offering. He thinks he has earned his status and proven himself worthy of honor. He knows that his younger brother has not. So he stands back as the judge of the situation. He stands back in refusal of the free gift of the father. The last thing that we need to shout to a broken and dying world around us is obey some list of commandments. Now, if you are going to use the commandments in your evangelism, use them to show the specific presence of sin and death in this world and in the lives of every man, woman, and child on this earth, including yourself. Then immediately show where life is found, where life is freely offered, where hope can be found in the face of certain death. What the second half of Romans chapter 5 says to us is this, Though death and spiritual death come to us all through Adam, life and spiritual life come to all who receive Christ. Though death and spiritual death come to us all through Adam, life and spiritual life Come to all who receive Christ. If you would follow along in your copy of God's Word, Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 12 through 21. Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Many of you work in the medical field, and I suppose that you have had to deal with death in your job. Maybe you've had to help fill out a death certificate, cause of death. Last week, I glanced at the obituary section of the newspaper. Actually, I was just watching a florist roll up her bouquets with newspaper, and she happened to be using the obituary section at the time. But I noticed one man's insert. It included his cause of death, natural causes. Now, this may be a stretch, but I don't think Paul would assign the cause of death to natural causes if he were filling out a death certificate. At least he doesn't here in our text. Where does death come from? Death comes through sin. Sin is most certainly supernatural. It's unnatural. It's not the regular order that God created originally. Sin did not come from God. Sin came through man, through one man, Adam. So why do any of us die? Why do all of us die? Because sin has spread to all of us. And what is the evidence that sin has spread to all of us? Death. The existence, the presence, the unavoidable truth of death for all of us is the proof that we all sin. Yes, we are able to identify the diseases that ravage our bodies. Yes, we are able to understand that this dude's heart stopped working because he had all of these conditions. But underneath all of that, the spiritual reality sometimes obscured from view is the reality of sin's consequences. And sin has existed from the first man to walk on this earth. Even though the law was given to man thousands of years after the creation of Adam, sin still existed. The law was not necessary to instigate or prove the existence of sin. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, the period of time where there was no law. And it doesn't take long to notice that death still reigns in this world. Hashtag 2020. The person or thing that reigns is the person or thing that cannot be stopped. Death cannot be stopped. Death is inevitable. Maybe that's why Thanos said he is inevitable, because he brings death. Well, at least to half of everything. Now, it could be argued that the only law... The only commands that existed in the world from the time of Adam to Moses was God's positive command to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and his negative command not to eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And so I think this is why Paul says in verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. The particulars of God's character and God's law did not have to be spelled out because it was written on the hearts of men and women. They did not bring sin into the world, and they didn't even have access to the tree in the midst of the garden. 
but they were still sinners. Paul has already argued this in chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You don't need the law to prove that sin exists. But the law does serve to explicitly show exactly how we sin. We may may not be able to count sin or specifically name it without the law, but the existence of death and our consciences bear witness to our sin. What the law does is simply allow us to specifically measure sin, to count it. Have you lied? Yes. Have you always honored your father and mother? No. Have you coveted your neighbor's stuff? Yes. Sin, sin, sin. The law serves to give specifics where previously there were generalities. But let's get back to Adam. The end of verse 14 says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Here's what Paul is beginning to explain. Through Adam, we have all been brought under under the dominion of sin and death. The universal effect of his sin, condemnation and death, is like the universal offering of the free gift, justification and life. But there is a new Adam who has brought a similar yet greater effect to man. There is a comparison between death and life, but its contrast is immensely significant, which is what he begins to say in verses 15 and 16. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. One sin was powerful enough to push the world into decay and death. But the grace of Jesus is powerful enough to bring life in the presence of numerous sins. Adam's sin and its consequences were great, but Jesus' grace and its consequences are greater. Death has reigned in this world because of one man's trespass, but much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Through one man, Adam, we all die. But through one man, Jesus Christ, we can live. Death has been forced onto us all, but only those who receive the free gift will live. Five times, five times in three verses, Paul uses the phrase free gift. Life is a gift. Righteousness is a gift. Grace is a gift. And they are free. How many of you like free stuff? I love free stuff. If you've been around me any period of time, you know that I'm a big fan of free. Free tickets? Given to me. Free parking? 
it's better than paying for it, even if we have to walk a mile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Yeah, there we go. Free samples? I'll gladly take as many as you want to give. Why not? It's free. But I think I'm becoming more discerning as I get older. Maybe I don't want a free Doritos Locos Taco from Taco Bell. Maybe it's better to pay $10 for parking and not have to hike to where I'm going. So I also think I'm slowly understanding why some people refuse to accept the free gift that God offers to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Some people just want to earn it for themselves. I know what I've done to work for it, so I know I deserve it and don't have to depend on God. I know what rules I have kept, what commandments I have followed, so I know there's a really good chance that my spot has been reserved. I want to control how other people are accepted into the kingdom. It seems a lot easier to tell people to do these few things so that they can know they are pleasing God. Just follow the Ten Commandments. You look to the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify about me, Jesus says. The free gift has been the point and continues to be the point of God's word, both Old and New Testaments. The New Testament simply gives us our Savior's name and a fuller identity, Jesus of Nazareth. As humans, we greatly desire to do things that bring us energy, bring us vitality, provide self-care. And while there's nothing wrong with stewarding well the body God has given you, how easy is it for us to neglect that which brings true life, spiritual life, eternal life? Do you know why it's good for us to read stories of martyrs? Not because we're sadistic, but because in their deaths, we see the life that has compelled them. The free gift of God's grace that they have recognized as above and beyond anything that this world has to offer. They recognized the reality that spiritual life is greater than physical life. They were ready to die because they already knew how to truly live. Through Adam's disobedience, they were found to be sinners. And through the law, their sin increased. It was magnified. It was like looking at bacteria through a microscope. That little speck on the Petri dish was not just a few cells. It was thousands, millions of cells of bacteria, where before all we thought was that we generally sinned in this way or that way. The law is like a microscope saying you've sinned in hundreds of thousands, millions of ways. Those martyrs did not find life in the law. All they found was death. They found life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Just as sin increased under the microscope of the law, similarly, but to an even greater extent, in Jesus, grace abounded to them all the more. If we think God showed grace in the Old Testament, generally, How much more specifically has he shown it to us through his Son in the New Testament? Jesus loved on sinners. He ate with prostitutes and tax collectors. He extended grace toward those whose sins were laid bare before him, those who needed his grace, those who wanted his grace, those who were willing to receive his grace. And he did not hold back. 
The tax collectors just thought that money could give them life. The prostitutes just thought that sex could give them life. The religious just thought that obedience to the law could give them life. But what they found in Jesus was that he was the source of life. Life eternal and life now. We are able to bask in life, to soak it up. The thief has come only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come, Jesus says in John 10.10, that you may have life and have it abundantly. The central point of Romans was already stated in Romans 1.17, which was likewise already stated in the Old Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. But maybe it would be more helpful if we read that text this way. The righteous by faith shall live. The righteous by faith shall live. Shall live, not just eternally, also now. Live, truly live. Isn't that what all of us are truly, really searching for? An abundance of life? Meaningful existence? Purposeful being? We don't just want to get by. We don't just want to be a cog in the ever-spinning wheel. We don't just want to survive. And this, life in Jesus, life because of Jesus, life through Jesus, is how we thrive. If we are going to be a church that serves this community then we first must be sure that we each are alive in Christ, vibrant in Christ, filled with the abundance of grace that comes through Christ. Then we must be sure that we are communicating the availability of this free gift to those around us. As we partake in the banquet of the Father, so we too invite others to partake in the banquet. We proclaim this gospel of life. We build each other up in this community of life. And we send each other out on this mission of life. There are two ways represented here in our text. Two kingdoms under which we can exist. The kingdom of Adam, where death reigns. Or the kingdom of Christ, where he reigns in life and we reign in life through him. Lay down your burdens. Lay down your shame. Lay down your obedience to the Ten Commandments. Lay down whatever is occupying your mind and whatever is occupying your hands. Choose life. There is no greater thing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this life that you have offered to us, this free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to live in him through his life. Let us not find the other things of this world appealing but help us to know that the only true life that we can live is through him and that it is freely available to us.
every hour. God, help us to understand this, to live in light of this, to live full and abundant lives because of what you have done for us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.